And welcome back to the Dynamic Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Saunders, and we are very excited today to speak with the CEO of the Nonprofit Alliance, Shannon McCracken, the Nonprofit Alliance on the front lines of doing all kinds of great work on behalf of fundraisers and nonprofit organizations. And we're going to talk about uh, what the Nonprofit Alliance is up to, what they're hearing from their members, and just the general state of fundraising. And we're very happy to bring Shannon into the show right now. Shannon McCracken, welcome to the Dynamic Nonprofits podcast. It's an honor to have you, and uh, we appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Dan. I've, I've been looking forward to this, so I appreciate being here. Well, um, a lot of our listeners are going to be familiar with you from your work with the Nonprofit Alliance um, at conferences and webinars and things like that, but uh, everyone may not be familiar with your backstory and how you got into the industry, how you got to where you are today with the Nonprofit Alliance, and I think those backstories are always interesting to hear. It's such a dynamic and diverse industry, so if you wouldn't mind, uh, would you mind sharing your fundraising story, how you got started, and how you ended up as CEO of the Nonprofit Alliance, um, heading up all the great work that your organization is doing. Sure, thanks, Dan. Um, so I started out, I, I mean, we all have some interesting left turns in our career, that's that's what makes this space so great. I started out um, with a direct mail agency, direct mail company. I knew really nothing about direct mail and direct marketing when I landed that job from an ad in the newspaper. So um, that really pointed me in the, in the direction that my career um, has gone from there. I loved the data aspect of it. I also loved the creative aspect. I was at an entry level, so I got to touch a lot of different things. And all of our clients were nonprofits. Um, so as much as I loved that work, I, I decided I wanted to be on the other side of the business um, and had an opportunity with Special Olympics. And I, um, at that time in my life, I didn't have a strong connection to the Special Olympics mission or the organization but was, was excited again to be moving to the nonprofit side and thought, I'll start there. I'll stay with Special Olympics for two years or so. And then I will use that to move to another nonprofit organization where I feel more of a connection with the mission. And 17 years later, I hadn't left Special Olympics. Turns out I really did have a connection with the mission once I got there. It was um, I fell in love with it and fell in love with the work we were doing as, as fundraisers and in donor development. Um, ultimately left there to, um, to explore an opportunity with Charity Navigator, and uh, they were in the, the early stages uh, with a new CEO, a new strategic plan, really looking at uh, doing more engagement with the nonprofits that uh, out there in the space, not just the donors, but, but the organizations they were, that they were rating and to build better relationships and more um, transparency and back and forth engagement with those organizations. So. I had the opportunity to go inside and, and be part of that process. And then the Nonprofit Alliance uh, idea was formed, not by me, by a group of founding board members. And, and they reached out and invited me to come lead this organization. And my first response was, you know, I'm not the right person, <laughs> but let me help be part of the search and, and look for someone. And then it, it um, kind of sat with me for a while. And I thought, this is I am exactly the right person. This is the right opportunity. Um, but based on some of my background, my volunteer work, uh, work on ethics issues, work on, on leadership within the uh, advisory council of the DMA Nonprofit Federation, this was uh, a big, scary chance that I was not going to get again. And so uh, I jumped in and, and here we are three years later and, and amazing momentum from the community. 
Yeah, and Nonprofit Alliance is doing so much, um, both on the legislative front, on the legal front, um, providing educational programming. It seems like um, you all have been around forever, but it's amazing that it only has been three years. Can you take us a back to um, the forming of the Nonprofit Alliance when you were brought into the discussion? Um, there were so many great organizations um, that advocate on behalf of the nonprofit sector. I'm involved in several myself. Mm -hmm. um, what did you see as being the unique role that the Nonprofit Alliance um, was going to play in the industry? Uh, was there a gap there that you were trying to fill? And is there anything um, in particular from your unique background that you saw as uh, a pressing need for an organization like this to fill in the sector? Sure, yes, there, there are um, definitely a number of associations out there doing really important work on the professional development and awareness side and, and workforce side, as well as the, the policy and advocacy side. Um, there were some shifts in the association space that were happening in 2018 um, that were leaving some, some empty seats at the table in terms of nonprofits being present for discussions on legislative issues at the state and federal level. Um, so for example, data privacy and use of consumer data, plenty of stakeholders um, on that topic, but not necessarily representing the nonprofit point of view in all cases, right? Um, and so that was, that was one place where we saw a gap. Um, and some of the other large um, national advocacy organizations that we think of for nonprofits work on really important issues and fundraising is sometimes left out of their issue list. Um, and, and so again, that was a place where we saw that there was some, there was some space to fill and a lot of interested um, organizations, individuals and firms, companies that work with nonprofits and fundraising and marketing that were ready to, to step up and try something new. Part of the nonprofit alliance is that uh, we really look for opportunities to collaborate. Um, so our structure is set up, not to get into all the governance documents, but our structure is set up so that we have councils and structure to collaborate with others. Um, so we, we are fortunate, for example, to, to do a good bit of collaboration with DMFA and with DMAW. I know you're involved with, with both of those, Dan. Um, they have excellent network of members, really on top of issues. Those organizations themselves don't do lobbying and advocacy work but we can partner with them, leverage their network, leverage their amplification, and, and uh, represent the common interests that we all have when we go to Capitol Hill. Yeah, and it's so important to have somebody looking out for that bigger picture because uh, there is uh, such a dynamic debate going on right now about consumer privacy, and there isn't always a voice in there for the nonprofit sector. And we see how sometimes these laws, they inadvertently might hamper fundraising or organizations ability to raise money and and there really needs to be that voice at the table um, to talk to lawmakers about the impact that it could have on our charitable sector and i think nonprofit alliance has done a great job in that regard and one of um your more significant victories was just very recently you wrote uh, you contributed an amicus brief in the americans for prosperity case that had to do with uh, the donor privacy law in California. Uh, we talked a lot about that on this show. Um, can you, uh, well, first off, congratulations. I mean, that's that's obviously a, a big victory for the organization, a big dividend for uh, members of the Nonprofit Alliance. But uh, can you um, walk us through that case in particular and um, 
let us know what led to the decision to become involved and why you thought this was something that was could significantly impact the nonprofit sector as a whole. Yes, and I, I, you have talked about this topic before on on your podcast and elsewhere on social media, and so I know your regular followers are probably familiar with it. But just a little bit of background on the case: um, all 501c3 charitable organizations file an IRS form 990 every year with the federal government. It is essentially a a um, pretty deep dive into our financials and a snapshot of financial and organizational health, including governance questions. And um, it's, it's a really good health um, scorecard. And as such, it is public information. Um, so it's, it's not only the IRS and the federal government using that, um, but also it is required to be available to donors, to anybody who wants to see that. So most organizations therefore proactively publish it on their website, so it's easily findable. Um, otherwise they provide it on request. Uh, third parties like Charity Navigator and GuideStar and Foundation Center publish those. Um, so the information is, is um, you know, again, out there for everyone, except for Schedule B. So there's one part of it that you as the, the organization file, the federal government keeps that information, but it is not part of the public disclosure copy. And Schedule B is your list of major donors, which for most organizations, that's defined as anybody who gives $5,000 or more in a tax year. And Schedule B includes the donor's name, their address, and their contribution information. Um, and so for some, some donors, that's, they take pride in that, they have naming rights, they're listed in annual reports, but that's not um, a given for everyone. For certain issues, for certain donors, um, they may not choose to give anonymously for tax reasons or otherwise, but they don't necessarily want that information out there to the world in perpetuity. Um, and, and, um, and I should say the federal government also needs that information because if somebody is claiming the charitable deduction, you know, we are essentially subsidized in a set in a sense by federal government because donors receive charitable deductions for their, their giving. And if somebody is claiming a large deduction, federal government needs the opportunity to be able to, to fact check that, right? And so they can do that with our Schedule Bs. States, state governments are not dealing with um, that same level of of um, fact checking for charitable deductions. State regulators do, however, have uh, responsibility for um, looking for fraud, uh, for weeding out the bad actors, the, the bad apples in the barrel. Um, and the state of California, in this case, was claiming that it needed to collect not only your Form 990 from every organization that was registering to fundraise in the state of California, um, but also that Schedule B that they wanted that for fraud detection purposes. And that's what this case was really about. An organization said, no, we don't want you to have this information. We don't think that you need it. And the state was saying, yes, we need it from you and from everybody just as standard filing if you wanna fundraise here. Um, the state did not, in this case, ultimately in, in front of the Supreme Court, the state did not meet the burden of proof showing that they in fact used that information to detect fraud like conceptually it could make sense, but they weren't actually using it that way. And unfortunately, along the way in collecting this information from organizations, they inadvertently published it. So it was findable on their website, it was public information, they weren't able to protect it, didn't have that safeguard in place at the time. So in their effort to reduce risk for donors and the donating public, they actually you know, managed to increase risk in that. Um, and so we uh, felt very strongly that 
um, this should not be public information, um, of course, and also did not need to be collected by the state. So there was risk in that, risk of it being used politically. Uh, we all see that on lots of examples of doxing and, and other information being used against people um, and didn't want to see nonprofits put at that level of risk. And so that was the basis of our amicus brief. Um, it was co-presented by the Association of Fundraising Professionals and by PETA Foundation and signed by 123 additional nonprofit organizations, which had conservative uh, missions, had progressive missions, had completely nonpartisan missions, large organizations, small organizations, uh, geographic diversity, really a, a good snapshot of um, of the nonprofit charitable space. And that brief was cited in the majority opinion written by Chief Justice Roberts in, in showing that organizations uh, uh, you know, really wanted to protect our donor identities and that this was an important, important case um, to lean that way. So there were two other states besides California, both New York and New Jersey were requiring filing of that Schedule B um, they were not involved in the Supreme Court case, but since that decision, they have now stopped that requirement as well. Yeah, so the major precedent, which hopefully will ward off uh, other states from uh, requesting uh, similar disclosures. Um, and, and I did get alerts on this uh, from the Nonprofit Alliance, from DMFA, from DMAW, where I'm a board member, and uh, clearly your networking went to work and thousands of fundraising professionals were engaged on something which they may otherwise not have been aware of. So um, great job on that front. And I really appreciate, um, and we've tried to do this on, on this show, is to strip the politics out of it, because I think there was a temptation in this case to look at it as conservative organizations who were trying to avoid having to disclose their donors. And it's very easy to get caught up in the politics of that. But a lot of the arguments against the law were based on a precedent from uh, a landmark NAACP case. I believe um, uh, NAACP also filed uh, an amicus brief uh, against the law. So it was important to have organizations like the Nonprofit Alliance saying, look, this impacts everyone equally. If we have decreased donor confidence, if people think there's an opportunity that their name could be leaked for political purposes, regardless of, of what the causes they're contributing to, that hurts giving. And um, it was important to have organizations on the forefront saying this applies to fundraising professionals, nonprofit organizations in because a lot of what you were reading in the media really kind of did boil this down to politics and how you feel about things like um, uh, disclosure requirements for political fundraising. And you did a great job really kind of filtering all of that out and, and getting to the crux of what the case was about and, and the impact it could have on the sector as a whole. Yeah, and, and that media spin certainly did go towards looking at the particular players in that case versus the, the issue and the precedent overall. I will say though, there's still a really important conversation that needs to, to continue within our sector and, and the broader um, social fabric about understanding where funding comes from, um, you know, having transparency into that, particularly for organizations whose issues and work and influence really start to kind of bleed that line with um, political issues. And that, that the, when you get to the root of the concerns, the kind of other side's perspective on the Supreme Court, court case, that's really what it came down to is, you know, talk of, of dark money and where's this funding coming from and um, 
sort of political funding back channels um, and and could that exist does that exist I, yes um, this this particular solution of requiring every organization to file their schedule b's was not the right solution that was that was a huge solution for a smaller problem but we still have a smaller problem problem to solve um, so that needs continued work continued discussion this is not a just like we brush the dust off our hands and walk away and say everything's good now it's there's there's we have responsibility in that as well too we as right. a sector mm -hmm. right ultimately self-policing and uh self-regulation will help ward off uh attempts uh regulation which could be overreach or inadvertently impacting the charitable sector so that's always good for fundraisers to be mindful of as well um is there anything else uh, right now on the legislative front or on the legal front that you think fundraisers um need to be aware of even if it's not happening in in their particular state Great question. I, I the the biggest issues we're focused on right now, and frankly, Congress is not moving very fast on data um, use and and consumer privacy. So, still lots of conversation, but not a lot of traction yet, uh, as they're coming out of COVID and focusing on infrastructure and lots of other priorities. Postal rate increase is a big concern for our, for our members, um, and. Um, so that's something we're continuing to to look to address not only the short term rate increase issue and the case that's that's continuing with that, but also just postal reform overall. Um, the the rate increase is a symptom of a much bigger long term problem, and that is solvable by Congress. So that's where we're continuing to to make a lot of effort right now, as well as universal charitable deduction, um, some workforce workforce issues, and. Um, uh, you know, tax issues that are impacting nonprofits. So. And I, I wanted, to, we talked about some of this offline, but I think you're in such a unique position um, as CEO of the Nonprofit Alliance where you can get all of this feedback from individual members. So I wanted to um, give you an opportunity to talk about some things which you thought were important to the industry could be related to on, on the legislative front could be um, just strategic uh, in nature, or just in general, um, what are members talking about? What are they concerned about these days um, on the fundraising front with so much going on? Like you're inviting me to pull up my soapboxes. <laughs> soapboxes are welcome on this show. We, we like soapboxes and we soap like people who are willing to stand on them. Perfect. Oh, I'll stand and jump on them. Um, it, the the I'd say there are really three answers to that question. One of them is the what does return to office look like? What does workforce look like? What what does it take to um, hire and retain staff right now? And some of that is the the way workforce has shifted and um, hiring and everybody's understanding of what it means to go to work now. Um, so and and we've heard. Uh, a number of our members say, are we all looking to hire the same unicorn staff person out there? There's there's a lot of hiring and a lot of job postings and people are, are really saying they're having trouble finding candidates for their positions. And I think the flip side of that is there are a lot of very talented people out there looking for positions and not finding the right fit. Um, so there's somewhere in there, there's a disconnect in expectations and needs and some of that is going to even out over the next few months as I think we all re-navigate this uh, work space um, situation. But that is certainly something we're hearing a lot from our members. And overlay that with 
the much more intentional and forthright conversation that's happening now around diversity and inclusion in our in our staffing, which look across the sector, we're not very good at that. We haven't historically been very good at that, especially larger organizations, um, small, small community-based organizations do a better job of, of having their workforce represent the community they're serving, larger organizations less so. So blend that, that intent in, um, and it's that much harder. It's taking that much longer to really bring in the right candidates. You know, I, I'm curious to get your take on this because uh, talent retention is something that I have written a lot about. And I see that the talent, um, the hiring and retention issues and diversity inclusion, I kind of see them as one and the same, that as an industry, I don't know that we do a great job of letting people know that uh, one, we exist, and two, that it is a viable career path. It's not an act of sacrifice to work in the nonprofit sector. I like to say that charitable giving is built on generosity. Working in ch with charitable organizations is not necessarily an act of generosity. You can have a viable career doing this. And, and I wonder, um, well, first, do you agree with that sentiment? And if you do, what do you think we can do as an industry to better promote um, what we do and the viability of it as a career path. Because I think about, we talked about um, your story and you, how you got into the industry. And I think about my, my own. I was a disaffected broadcasting major who wanted to get into marketing of some type, didn't even know this sector exists, found an ad on Craigslist. If somebody had, there had been more outreach, it probably would have resonated right away that it was something that made a lot of sense. What can we do to better connect with people who, may be interested in um, fundraising as a profession, but just don't know enough about it? Great question. I'd say, first of all, since when I came out of college, I really didn't understand that fundraising was a career path. So I, and, and I thought to work in the nonprofit space meant I needed to graduate with a social work degree, which I did not do. Um, and so, and part of the reason I didn't pursue a social work degree is that I understood that the pay in that space is, very low and I saw something really glamorous like advertising, which is really what I focused on as being much more glamorous and high paying, right? So um, I, I think young people graduating from college now do have a better understanding of the breadth of, of jobs and career paths that exist in the nonprofit space. We can continue to do a better job of publicizing that and, and building the awareness, but it's certainly moved in the past couple decades since I was in that, in that space. I also think, and you and I were joking about this before the show, because we have both um, been guilty of saying, how did you, you know, how did you get into your career oh, accidentally? Um, and I think, it, and a lot of us say that you were saying like probably 90% of people on your show say, oh, I got here accidentally. And it's always a happy accident. It was something we didn't intend to, we didn't grow up saying, I'm going to be a fundraiser. Or I'm going to work for a nonprofit. And we landed here out of um, destiny, luck, whatever we want to call it. I think we need to start talking about this more as, um, as, as having some intention and some plan of starting in one space, realizing there was part of that, that profession that we, had, we started out in that wasn't exactly meeting our needs, that wasn't giving us the satisfaction we wanted. And then we, we intentionally moved over into the nonprofit or the nonprofit serving space. Having that intentionality around the career tells somebody, wait a minute, I can start there from the beginning and get in and really see the opportunity and, and build a career path for myself rather than sort of happening to fall into it when something else doesn't work out the way I thought it would. 
Um, so it's really, it's about us changing the way we talk about our own choices and the way that we got to where we are today that will begin to influence those who are coming up behind us. Yeah, that, that, that is uh, a great perspective. Um, I'm also curious uh, what role you think, um, how we talk about overhead plays in this. Um, oh, yeah. You know, should we be evolving past the point where we talk about low overhead as it being a good thing and change that to investments in staff and personnel? Um, they help you increase your impact and they help you raise more money and these things are not wasteful. Is that part of the discussion as well as uh, encouraging nonprofit organizations to be more proactive about talking about the value of investment? Absolutely. We have to shift the conversation. It, it drives me crazy. I know it drives you crazy too. When in media stories, there's this discussion and there was, there was a big one recently and it's discussion of this percentage of your dollars go to direct service. Well, your dollars paying staff are also part of that direct service. Like direct service isn't this separate little amoeba thing that happens while staff are over here, like filling out spreadsheets and buying coffee. The staff make that direct service happen. And when you take staff costs out of that calculation of, oh, 40 cents on your dollar or 60 cents on your dollar, whatever it is, then it's really this missing part. You pull out the staff expense, then zero happens in direct. Um, so it's, it, and I can point the fingers at, at media and the way they tell that story, but it starts with us as a sector. It starts with the way that we're reporting our own numbers, the way that we're showing pie charts, um, the way that we're, we're promoting and recognizing and, and compensating our people. Um, and there's, there is such a thing as too far. Um, there is such a thing as you know, too much compensation and, and um, too much expense, and, but that's true everywhere, right? And so again, it's about, um, about the self-policing and ensuring that we're delivering on our mission in the most efficient and the most effective way that we can as an organization. Right, and I think once we start internally changing the way that we talk about how nonprofit organizations budget and how they invest in personnel, hopefully that will lead to um, a change of perception externally and people not assuming that it's an act of charity to go work for a charity or with charitable organizations. Because from the outside, I think that's what people get is that organizations are, they want to spend as little as possible. And very often, especially if you have a, a complex mission or one that's, um, that's just very big in scope, um, you may need to invest more in order to be able to advance your mission. So sometimes I think it's also actually counterproductive to our work to focus so much on overhead. Uh, so hopefully we can start um, changing that conversation. And, and um, I'm sure that, um, that the Nonprofit Alliance will be on the front lines uh, leading that conversation change. Um, is there anything else uh, either strategically or from um, or, or from a fundraising standpoint that you hear a lot from donors. I know we, we, one of the things we talked about prior to the show was the democracy of giving, that organizations um, seem to be shifting more towards an approach of fundraising to fewer people, focusing on higher value donors. Um, and in some ways, I think that it makes sense because the data is clearly pointing them in the direction, but are there some um, unintended consequences which could come about from this shift that were excluding more people from the practice of, of fundraising and generosity? I think, 
<clears throat> yes, I would say so. And and I don't know how much of the shift to fewer higher value donors was really something we set out to do intentionally. Like here's our five-year tenure plan to have a smaller file that's giving more. I, I think, as you said, the data sort of led us that way and the, uh, our own KPIs and our metrics and how we're, we're measuring the success and, and return on investment in our programs has led us down this path. And so many organizations, when they're looking at their direct marketing files now, are if you're, if you're always tracking based on revenue, net revenue at the end of the year, and, um, and you have fewer people giving, but you're able to nudge up that average gift then you're okay because at the end of the day you still have as much money or more your net revenue is you know perhaps even stronger with fewer people on the file you're still covering your bases and so you're not worried about it and can even go down the path of um and and there's some validity to this of saying let's not even bring in the smaller dollar donors that take that much longer to break even um depending on your your first year conversion rates and your retention rates you may never break break even on so you're just doing this this churn that's good for no one um but there is this space in the middle where we're leaving some donors behind and so our files are shrinking our revenue is staying about the same that's what's happening on our direct marketing files those are the files that are feeding the future of our mid-level and our major donor and our planned gifts and it's the philanthropic behavior where we're helping to embed in people's psyche and the way that they're thinking about giving. Um, and so if fewer people are giving, Giving USA just released the information that fewer than 50% of households can, made charitable contributions last year. And this is in a year that we talk about incredible generosity and that organizations um, and individual and certain individual giving channels did really well last year. And yet giving dropped, it's fewer people with that generosity. What does that mean in the long run? Well, you started to say it there, Dan, it means that fewer people are making decisions about what organizations and therefore what issues are getting funded. And so let's sort of take this to the extreme or to a different, different way of thinking about it. We wouldn't want fewer, more advantaged people in this country to be deciding who the president is. That's a decision that should be available to everyone to be able to contribute to that decision with their vote. With philanthropy, as we are selecting who we're um, soliciting with our fundraising appeals, and therefore selecting who we're not soliciting, we're making that, we're leaving that choice to fewer and fewer people. And over, and we're not going to see it overnight, but over time, that means that certain issues and certain causes, as well as the organizations themselves, are going to be left behind because they aren't going to be that, you know, that more popular cause or that one that somebody of certain demographic cares about more. And I think that's a very dangerous way to be heading. And I am concerned about the snowball impact of all this, that once you start moving in that direction of focusing on higher value donors, and then you start modeling your future approaches based on your current files, that it's going to keep pointing you in that direction and your market's going to get narrower and narrower and you're going to have trouble bringing in uh, newer and younger and more diverse donors. Uh, I was just talking on the show with uh, Justin McCord from the RKD Group about their Generation X study. And mm -hmm. I don't know if there is a direct mail model built on RFM that would find me um, because I just, I when I give, I don't typically give through direct mail. I do independent research. I see something, it triggers a Google search, something of that nature. And 
if you're just focusing on the donors that you have and that's modeling your future approach, you're probably leaving a lot of good prospects on the table. So I do worry about that snowball effect and, and it just kind of um, getting getting more severe and more focused over the years. I, I also, I'm a big fan of the, it's not you, it's me approach to fundraising that when you look at lower dollar donors or, or different generations and, and you look at your uh, lifetime value and I'm a big fan, big proponent of lifetime value, but it's not, um, it, it's not always uh, destiny. Sometimes it could be indicating that you're doing something wrong, not necessarily that this is not a worthwhile group of donors. And, and ask the questions, what could we be doing more to get more gifts and more value out of $25 donors? Are we not making them feel included in the organization, that their gift is value, that their gift is important, that it's making an impact um, with younger donors? Are we not doing enough um, with multiple touch points, multiple channels? I mean, the average consumer, the most recent data that I've heard is that the average consumer requires 20 touch points with a brand before they make a purchasing decision. And I'm very, very confident that that number is much larger as you get younger, because that's just what younger donors, young, younger consumers are used to. And, and asking those tough questions of what are we doing wrong before simply, um, uh, before simply just writing off groups of donors as not being worthwhile investments. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll uh, leave that with you and <laughs> give you the floor for, uh, for what you think about my soapbox statement. I, I'll pull my soapbox up alongside yours. And I think what you're describing is also why our files are not as diverse in, in the demographics and the racial mix and um, you know, even age to some point, certainly in zip code, because we've been going for those lookalike donors, um, which means again, we're specifically not going for donors who aren't behaving like our current donors. And, um, and when something doesn't work, a test list, a you know, particular select, when that doesn't work, we assume and we tell ourselves it's because those donors, those households um, aren't charitable or our cause isn't relevant to them. So it's, it's, we've sort of left all the, the blame or the responsibility in their laps and said, well, I guess we're not a good fit. We'll move on to find somebody who is. Instead of looking at the fact that, just like you said, maybe it's us, maybe it's the fact that, um, the way that we've we've tested into our controls of how we describe our mission, how we describe our need, how we put the donor in the hero's position, um, connect them with the, the cause and the change that we're looking to drive. Really all of that in our messaging and our gift ask string and our timing and in um, the images that we're using, we've built that around our existing donor file and the existing demographics of the donor file. So let's go back to that select um, or that, that population slice that isn't responding to us, what if we repackage, um, not change what we're doing, our, our organization missions and, and the work that we're doing doesn't have to change, certainly, but just change the way we talk about it and change the way we invite them in to be part of our organizations and, and to come alongside us with their support. If we change the way we're talking about it, maybe we are absolutely relevant. Um, so it is, it's about us and not them. I'm just, I'm completely there with you, Dan. We could talk about this all day. Right, right. Different generations, different types of donors require different approaches. And the pushback against that is, well, we don't have time for that. We don't have the uh, personnel to dedicate to having these multiple uh, um, 
multiple donor streams. And, and that kind of gets back to our beginning conversation about overhead, about investment, about talent recruitment, and making sure that organizations are not making these uh, decisions in the short term, which may save time, may save money, but in the long run are costing them revenue, but also um, reach with these very important donors. Um, and, and I also... I, I do worry, especially as we're talking about younger donors and looking at channels um, like live stream fundraising, like Facebook, where um, simply writing them off based on their percentage worth compared to direct mail, which I'm a huge fan of direct mail, big proponent of it. Um, I think this is the bigger picture because you're talking about literally the most connected generation in history especially when you start getting to Generation Z donors. And one thing the political world has always understood very well is that um, somebody who writes you a max check will write you a check. But the person who gives you $10, person who gives you $5, um, those are the people that create the energy you're based. They're going to tell your friend, their friends and family to vote for you. So it has exponential impact. And uh, don't know that there's any um, quantifiable data to back this up yet, but I, I strongly suspect it's the same thing with fundraising that um, by excluding those donors or not attempting to reach out to them, that nonprofits are losing that, um, that exponential impact, the buzz factor of people who are willing to broadcast their values to their friends and family and just starting to think about things differently and not just a one-dimensional view of, of how much revenue is this channel or is this group of donors worth on, on a spreadsheet? Because um, if we want to grow, if we want to become more dynamic, more diverse as an industry, I, I think that multi-dimensional approach is, is really how we have to start looking at these things. And, and if it were easy, we'd all be doing it. So it's, um, we talk here at the Nonprofit Alliance, we talk a lot about 15% solutions. So getting to 100%, like from, from start to finish, doing it perfectly is overwhelming and oftentimes just not practical. But what is the 15% thing? What is the thing that you have the resources, the control, the expertise, the autonomy, the, um, the right people at the table to be able to move the needle 15% to do that one thing, implement that, include that. You're, you're, you may not be able to convince your leadership and your board to change all your KPIs for fundraising next year. And you probably shouldn't. I mean, you, you still need to ensure that the mission is continues and that staff are paid and the lights stay on. But what is one thing that you could do differently in 2022 in your fundraising program to diversify your file or measure um, channels differently or, or blend some of those internal silos in your finance department? Um, and then in 2023, you get to do the next thing. So just, just build. Yeah, I love that. Just test one thing, do one thing, that kind of approach, because Yes, fundraising is a very established industry, and some people are 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 stuck in their ways. But I also find fundraisers to be very pragmatic, very data based. And if you're able to, you know, it may it may be overwhelming to try to change your organization from top to bottom and the way that they think about things, and that may not get you very far. But if you can get that one test that demonstrates the value of a different approach, that's what's going to get people thinking and start saying, "Hey, we need to be doing more of that." So I, I like that. Just get one test, one idea, something that you can quantify, and and I do find that most fundraisers are, um, you know, very database intuitive thinkers. And if there's evidence there that they should be doing something different, they're going to be open minded to it. Um, 
you know, as opposed to going in and trying to change everything overnight. Yeah, you're, we're not going to be successful at that. We're, nobody gets to turn their program completely upside down. That said, look at the muscles we stretched as fundraisers and as nonprofits last year. And, and in February or January of 2020, if you'd said, okay, we're going to pull the rug out from under you completely, we're going to present this scenario to you that is completely unprecedented. We have no idea how long it's going to last or what public response is going to be. Um, go. <laughs> you know, and that's essentially what we handed to people or what, what the universe handed to us. Um, and, and organizations, first of all, have learned from past experiences and past mistakes. So most organizations, particularly in the, the direct marketing space and larger organizations didn't turn everything off, but they certainly audited everything. They looked at their messaging, they looked at their timing, they looked at the cadence, they looked at the channels that they were using and what they were dialing up and down. They were measuring as fast as they possibly could. So we were dealing with postal delays and you know things like that, but, but started tracking digital, started measuring sooner. If you were looking at results before every week or every month, people were doing it more frequently, reporting up, putting heads together um, and willing to test and learn faster, iterate faster. We're really slow to test in this space. And that's kind of the nature of particularly the more traditional direct marketing channels. It takes us a long time and then we retest and then we re-retest. Takes us a long time to feel like we've learned something. Last year, we were ready to learn quickly. And look what we did. I mean, organizations, yes, there was PPP money. Yes, there was, but organizations did a phenomenal job of, of creatively adapting their, their programs, certainly their staff situation, certainly their volunteer base or, or disappearing volunteer base and their fundraising. So we can do this. We just have to not slip back into um, completely into some of that, like, let's let everything take its time and keep some of that urgency under us. Yeah, I think the forced innovation from the pandemic has been a positive thing for the industry. I saw organizations which historically didn't necessarily put a lot of value into things like social media, realizing that there was uh, a value to using that to communicate with donors and not always focusing on the donation, but instead the value and the human interaction. And um, one of the messages that I really tried to put out was, this is not a wartime footing. These are things we should have been doing anyway. They're going to have value after the pandemic. Um, from your position, do you think that the industry realizes the importance of the things that we did well during the pandemic and is going to carry them forward? Or are you concerned that we are going to um, fall back into um, bad habits of, of doing just what we've always done? I think I see a glass half full. I think in the last year and a half, we got about five years smarter. Um, and, and I think that's going to stick with us. I mean, and, and particularly some of the innovation and also the fact that we gave our permission, gave ourselves some permission last year to break some of those rules that we had around timing and blending channels and testing new things and stuff that we were like, oh my gosh, that would never work. Or I would never use that approach with a donor or with this particular program, but we did it because we didn't, we felt like it was the best option at the time and it worked. And so I think some of that bravery will stay with us because we now we have some proof of concept um, and, and our leadership has proof of concept and some of that. And uh, I, no, I, I think that's going to stay with us. I think that's a positive change. And not being afraid to fail. And if you do fail, learning from it, celebrating that failure and not looking at it as, as a one-off and just something that was a bad idea because during the pandemic, um, we were all so desperate to get our feet on the ground. Nobody was asking, well, 
what if this doesn't work? Because we had no choice and we just had to learn in, in real time. So I think that that mindset of not being afraid of failure and uh, being very proactive about testing new things is a healthy one. And, and I do hope that it sticks with the industry. And um, Shannon, we really appreciate you being so generous with your time. And as we get prepared to wrap things up here, I want to open the floor to you because you have such a, a wonderful perspective and, and such great insight into what so many organizations are concerned about and the needs of the industry. So um, what is, is one thing that you're looking at that you think is the most pressing issue for the fundraising industry to address uh, right now? There's... Dan, there's always a laundry list. Which soapbox do I pick? I, I want to call out one issue that um, that I've tried to bring more to my own consciousness all the time, um, and, and that is around our mental health as um, as employees, as employers, as managers, as colleagues. Um, certainly, the, it it's become more comfortable for all of us to be talking about mental health and the fact that. We're not workers at work and home life at home that, that we've blurred all those lines and blended that and have a greater appreciation for everybody else's, their whole selves. Um, this summer, I think people have, have had many more opportunities to take vacation, to try some of that disconnect, to do all those things we're supposed to do in the summer, um, spend time with family, see friends, go outside. Um, and, and that's been good. I think some people have tried to pack two summers into one and God bless them. I'm glad it's worked for them. As we're heading into now, the end of the calendar year, heavy fundraising season, lots of pressure once again on everybody to, to hit numbers and all of those pieces. It's We have to recognize that we're still exhausted, that it's been a tough year and a half, that there's a lot of burnout, that there's still a lot of uncertainty. Is the office open? Is it not open? Is it um, what's happening next? What are we doing with this event? We're all feeling that and we need to look out for ourselves and look out for each other. And this isn't one of my normal soapboxes, I'm normally much more the like, how can we overachieve? How can we do the next thing? Like, I feel sick today. I could feel sick at home or I could feel sick at work. Might as well go to work. Like that's my, <laughs> that's always been sort of my DNA. And, and now I'm trying to be just much more conscious that first of all, that's probably not the best for me. And it's definitely not the way we should be taking care of each other. Yeah, because uh, fundraisers stepped up to a plate for uh, in a big way during the pandemic and still continue to, but um, I do think it, it makes sense to realize that burnout is going to be a factor. I think this is where leadership counts, and I certainly appreciate your leadership in this area. Uh, mental health is, is a very big issue of importance for me. And um, you know, in some ways, I, I think Simone Biles at the Olympics kind of forced mm -hmm. this conversation on a lot of us, and it's gonna, I hope it has repercussions far outside of the Olympic world. But uh, to me, a really basic litmus test on this is if an employee says, I need a mental health day, or an employee comes and, and wants to talk about a mental, mental health issue that they're having or is looking for support, what is the reaction going to be internally? Because it's very easy to say, talk about these things, be open about it, but it's, it's incumbent upon leaders to create a culture where employees feel comfortable talking about these things and not being self-conscious about them. And then I think people really will put themselves first and take care of themselves. But if, if they don't feel like the culture is there and the support is going to be there, I, I don't know that it's 
it's necessarily fair to expect people to take that step on on, the, on themselves. So what, what are some, are there any steps that you think that leaders at organizations can take to make a more inclusive and empathetic culture about mental health? I think first talking about it. So including mental health information, education, and resources in the same way that you provide that for other workplace professional development. So including that in the, the total HR curriculum, whatever that looks like for your, your organization or should look like for your organization. Um, I, I would say too, it doesn't have to be disclosed, right? It's great to create that culture that you have a staff member who can come to you and say, I need a mental health day. But part of this too is just them saying, I need to take tomorrow off and and you know that being okay it may be for them it may be for somebody in their family who just needs that time but creating some of that space um to to not require all the documentation that we necessarily have in the past to just have that trust and that permission and and a policy and a process to allow that to happen um and and i think too whether it's in zoom or whether it's around a conference table or whatever that again that looks like for your organization and your team at this time um, again, I'm somebody who's all about like, let's be efficient in this meeting, boom, 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 get it done. Um, but also treating each other as, as human beings with whole lives, like understanding how people's weekends are going and whatever it is that they want to share and having some of that connectivity, because that's where you build trust. That's where you build empathy. Um, and, and we need that in our workplaces as much as we need it everywhere else. Absolutely. And not only is it the right thing to do from a human standpoint, I think it's our strategic advantage as a sector because we are, our, our, our work is built on empathy and um, that um, empathy and being worker friendly and family friendly, in addition to the compensation issues and the way we talk about overhead and things like that. Um, ultimately, I see all these things coming together to help make us a more attractive sector for people to work in. Um, and maybe get the, some kind of considerations that they're not going to necessarily get uh, from the more cutthroat commercial world. So um, it, it's good for fundraisers, but I think it's also good for fundraising in general to put mental health first and to create a culture where uh, people understand that's the case. Um, well, yeah. Shannon, we've covered a lot today. Again, we really appreciate you being so generous with your time. Um, if listeners would like to get to know more about you to get in touch or more about the work of the Nonprofit Alliance, um, what are some ways for them to do that? So first come to our website, tnpa.org, the nonprofitalliance.org, tnpa. Come there, visit us on the homepage. You can sign up to receive our newsletter, our monthly legislative uh, roundup, as well as alerts, invitations to events. Um, you can visit our event calendar, you can visit our policy pages. So there's just a ton of content and information about us, including how to become a member on our website. So we invite you to start there. You can also contact us through that. Reach out to me, connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, I love having Zoom virtual coffees these days and, and just getting to know more people or catch up on friends and colleagues that I haven't had the chance to see in a while. So please do. Wonderful. Well, we'll link to all of your information in the show notes. And uh, Shannon, thank you so much uh, for your time today, for all the information and for all of the great work that uh, you all are doing over at the Nonprofit Alliance on our behalf. Thanks, Dan. Great to be here.